In the meantime, we're going to look at Ezra, not Exodus, Ezra chapter 3. That's our text, so if you can navigate over there in your Bible or on your device, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13, the entire chapter. The topic, some of the old men who had seen the splendor of the first temple wept aloud with disappointment at the simplicity of the second temple, the title of our message, Temple Tantrum. Or Temple Tantrum, I guess you could say. <laughs> Ushers, we have a disturbance. Oh, Father, thanks for uh, our time this morning. As we now turn attention to your word, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher. You promised that he would be, and so we claim that promise right now. Teach us. And remind us uh, about Jesus and his salvation and his love for us. We thank you, Lord, that you came and you died and you rose from the dead. And Lord, we pray that if there's somebody here that doesn't know you in a saving way, that they would by the time we're done. We thank you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. You can perform an unclaimed property search on the California State Controller's website. I searched on Wednesday. I was surprised to find a result. I have an accounts receivable credit of $7.99 reported by Microsoft Corporation. All I have to do is fill out the paperwork to claim it. But I decided not to claim it at this time. I'm going to save it right there for the next recession so that I have a, a little nest egg to draw from. There was a second result pertaining not to me but to my dad. He died with farmer's insurance owing him 61 cents from a court deposit. And so at some point, uh, my brothers and I will split that. <laughs> Actually, my, well, never mind. It's always nice to receive unexpected money. Just ask John Helinski. This is from a 2015 article. For three years, John Helinski's home was a cardboard box at a Tampa Bay bus stop. The 62-year-old had all of his personal identification stolen, so struggled to apply for a place at a homeless shelter. But when a police officer and his case manager looked into his past, they found a forgotten bank account with money and enough Social Security benefits to buy his own house. Now, I mention all this because we're going to highlight untapped spiritual resources in today's Bible study. We're told in the New Testament that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ and that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It prompted one commentator to say, if you find one single blessing with which God might bless us today, with which he has not already blessed us, then what he told Paul was false, because he said all. Now, and that's, if that's true, and it is, why do we who are in Christ often do life in our own strength as if we don't know the spiritual resources are available to us. Well, the return of the exiles to Jerusalem can help us answer that question. The first thing they did upon their return was to build an altar to the Lord. It's gonna to suggest to us that we have an altar from which all of our promised spiritual blessings and resources are guaranteed. So I'm gonna organize my comments around two questions. Number one, do you know that you have an altar? And number two, do you show that you have an altar? Let's look at knowing about it in verses one through seven. Now, you might prefer Les Stroud, uh, also known as Survivor Man, over Bear Grylls or vice versa. But either way, survival skills shows are hugely popular. 
42,360 returning exiles found themselves in a survival situation. Jerusalem was in ruins. The returnees had an abundance of livestock and they had lots and lots of money. There was no army and there were no walls or gates to protect the city from hostiles around it. Les Stroud or Bear Grylls, what would be their first order of business? I think they would say, build the walls for protection. And we might chime in and say, yeah, that sounds smart. The Jews, verse 2, built the altar. That sounds dumb, but it was spiritually brilliant. If this endeavor was going to succeed, it would be by depending upon God. Building the altar first was a bold declaration that they intended to put God first in this endeavor. With God on their side, there was no need for physical walls. He would be their shield. Uh, Let's apply that in one sense. Let's say your family was going through a rough patch. Do you think it would be smart to continue to be involved with church and spiritual activities or to put all that on hold while you spend more time in recreation with your family? I think you know the answer to that, or at least what Ezra would say. And so verse one, and when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. The seventh month called Tishri began with the blowing of trumpets on the first day of the month, sometimes called the Feast of Trumpets. The Day of Atonement followed on the 10th day and the Feast of Tabernacles on the 15th through the 21st. It was a good season to begin rebuilding in earnest because there was a lot of new, fresh spiritual activity. They gathered as one man is a great compliment. Unity is something we have already by virtue of being in Christ. We maintain it by yielding to God's authority, to his earthly authority over us, and to one another in love. And so we don't have to work for unity. We have it unless we let it break down. So anytime you see a church or Christians in division, uh, we've fallen from what God has provided for us and we can find ways to be united again. Verse two, then Yeshua, the son of Jozadak and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel and his brethren, they arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. To start with the altar when so much else could have logically been put ahead of it is an incredible show of faith. They were, in a sense, putting God to the test. They put him first, trusting he would come through for them. Before we move on, notice they referred to Moses as the man of God. There are a lot of titles they could have given him, prophet, lawgiver, deliverer. They chose the simplest, and it's the most profound because it emphasizes his absolute dependence on God. He was a man, but a man of God, whose heart belonged to God, and that's why he was able to be used so mightily by God. Verse 3. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. You might think that your fear indicates a lack of faith, but that's not always true because we see these people, tremendous faith, a tremendous show of faith, and yet we're told that they were afraid of the people around them. What indicates a lack of faith is disobedience and surrendering to your fear. So if you're going through something right now or soon and you have a combination of faith and fear, that's very normal. Uh, The idea is not to give in to your fear, but to trust the Lord by faith and continue to do the things that are right. Don't leave off building the altar, as it were, because you see these other dangers. 
Also, I would mention that God didn't take away their fear. Even though they made a bold statement of faith, putting God to the test, he didn't supernaturally take away all their fear. Uh, This was something they had to continue to struggle with. There is uh, value in spiritual struggle, in, in pitting fear against faith, as it were, and seeing how faith will overcome. And uh, in all areas of our life, uh, we expect immediate results when many times God wants us to continue the struggle so that we can learn from what we've been through and have that kind of spiritual experience. Uh, With your kids, I mean, they have to learn things, right? And they have to go through some things. You can't shield them from everything. You can't give them everything. You can't spoil them, not until you're a grandparent. Then your, kid, then your kids are mad at you and you say, yeah, well, I'm getting you back. But anyway, so we go through these things. When the children of Israel first go into the land, you remember God left some enemies there so that they would learn warfare and battle and not get lazy. Nothing worse than a lazy Christian. Verse four, they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written. They offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. They immersed themselves in their religious calendar with its daily and monthly rites and rituals and with its annual feasts. It must have been beyond exciting to establish worship after 70 years of exile. Their, their worship centered around the temple. They've been gone from it for 70 years, and now they could get back on their calendar. Now, we don't have a prescribed calendar. Some denominations do follow a rather arbitrary calendar. Uh, they'll have a set of messages for the Lenten season or for the Advent season, those kinds of things. I guess that's okay, but I'd rather have the freedom we have in Christ to be led by his spirit. And so if you feel more comfortable with a church calendar and those kinds of things, that's okay as long as you don't feel superior because of it. About once a decade, there's a movement among evangelical Christians towards a more ritualistic worship. Somebody wakes up one day and says, we're just too casual. We need to get back to what the early church did. Now, what they mean is, I read some things about the medieval church and some of the programs that they had, and I went to something like that at a high church service, and I felt the mystical presence of God when the priest came down with his censer going, (laughs) you laugh. I came out of a ritualistic religion, and and I wasn't saved, of course, but... uh, it's, you feel like something's going on. I mean, nobody walks like that and chants like that with incense burning in a censer with altar boys holding candles. I mean, wow, this is, this is God. And then you find out it's, it's the furthest thing from God that you can imagine. But don't, don't be drawn in by that. Ritual always sets a barrier between you and God. It, we have immediate access to the Lord. If you want to go to the early church, go to the first century church uh, the Church of the Apostles, and you'll find out that they were the original Calvary chapels. They were, I mean, sometimes, think about it. Now, I, I, I mean that. Can you imagine in any of the situations that you see Peter, for example, who some people claim is the first pope, 
Do you see him meeting with Cornelius to bring him the gospel, wearing a fish hat and having a censer? Does he come up to Cornelius and say, I'm here with the censer now? He just goes like you and I would, and he's freaked out, and he says, I'm here to preach the gospel. I don't know what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit comes, and Peter says, well, I guess the Spirit is for Gentiles too. None of those guys would wear that garb, and they wouldn't chant, and so why should we? So you have to understand, we get drawn to that because of our flesh. We feel like we're doing something more spiritual. It must be more spiritual to chant than to not chant. It must be more spiritual to have incense than to not have incense or candles or whatever it is. It's not. If you want to do that, that's fine. Just know that you're not more spiritual because of it. You're certainly not closer to God. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They did what was prescribed in God's word. Any and every time you hear or read God's word, it has the power to teach you, to reprove you, to correct you, or to train you in righteousness. That's from 1 Timothy 3.16. If you're not in Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation. So upon encountering the word of God, you might ask yourself, am I saved? If you are saved, then you ask, what was I taught? How was I reproved? Where was I corrected? What training did I receive in righteousness? Those of you who like to journal or take notes, every time you read or hear the Bible taught, afterwards you should maybe have those questions somewhere written down and just ask yourself, if, if this is what the Bible is intended to do, did it do it? Did I allow it to correct me or to reprove me or to instruct me? And what did I learn or what am I going to correct? Those kinds of things. Engage. Verse seven, they also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Sidon and Tyre were where the closest home depot was located and so they started gathering the building materials they would need. First things first, always a good principle, emphasize the basics. So they they were going to have to have basic resources in order to start. In our case, the basics are prayer, the word, fellowship in the local church, and revealing Jesus to others through your witness. They had the government on their side. That is going to change, but either way, their task never changed. Uh, The church has a mission and that is to go throughout the whole world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, making disciples. Sometimes that's going to be easier than others, depending on where you are in the world and who governs at the time. But the mission remains the same. Sometimes the church is above ground. Sometimes it has to go underground. But either way, uh, we are never off task. Now, you've, made, you've waited long enough for me to explain what it means that you have an altar I'll let the writer to the Hebrew believers tell you. He says this in Hebrews 13, 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Let me quickly give you the context for that statement. The Hebrew believers were being persecuted by their Jewish relatives and friends, and they were being pressured to give up Jesus and return to the temple with its sacrifices and offerings. The writer to the Hebrew believers throughout the letter shows that the temple and its sacrifices are canceled out now that Jesus has fulfilled all of its symbolism. It was a shadow. 
he is the substance. All of its sacrifices are done away with by his one sacrifice on the cross. And so when the writer says, we have an altar that they can't eat from, he means that we are superior in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ than the old temple system was, uh, which was an acknowledgement that there was problems between us and God. And so we don't want to go back. We can't go back. So we have an altar first means that the whole temple system is to be completely abandoned. But what or who is our altar? Well, some suggest it's the cross. Some suggest it's the communion table. Others say it is Jesus himself. Our altar is Jesus, but in a much fuller way than we sometimes realize. It is Jesus and everything about him, everything he did and everything he does. It is the totality of being in Christ It's his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. It's the forgiveness of our sins. It's our salvation. It's the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. It's our ongoing sanctification. It's our future glorification. It's our eternal life with God in heaven. It's our access to all spiritual blessing in heavenly places and everything we need for life and godliness. That's what Paul said. That's what Peter said. All means all. Everything means everything. So we have an altar means you have all of heaven's resources to draw from. Otherwise, on your way home to heaven, you're going to live as if you're homeless, not knowing you have a full account to draw from. And so we start with knowing what we have. You'll see this pattern in the, uh, the epistles of Paul, especially his letters to the churches. He'll start by laying down what we call doctrine. Doctrine is simply a word that means teaching, but he'll tell you uh, what's going on in the Christian life, what you've received as an inheritance, what your blessings are, those kinds of things. And then he'll move from that to the practical. But he doesn't start with the practical. He starts with the doctrinal because you can't do the practical unless you understand the doctrinal. And that's why we struggle so much uh, with our Christianity, uh, especially in the United States, because everybody wants to go immediately to the practical. How do I do these things? How do I pray? How do I do this? How do I do that? Nobody wants to read a dull book on theology. They want to get to the practical. All the books that are popular are always how-to books. But the biblical pattern is how-to is to know things. You need to know things. You need to know that all spiritual blessings are yours in heavenly places and that you have everything you need for life and godliness because that's going to make a big difference on what happens on the practical side. Instead of making a list of the five things you should do in order to be blessed by God, God said, I blessed you already. All of this belongs to you. You have to simply believe it. There's nothing to do. This isn't a cooperation. It isn't a participation, it's my gift to you. And so don't act like you have to pray for one hour and 10 minutes and then all of a sudden it unlocks the next level. That's like a video game mentality. Where are you, I'm on level one, I can't get past level one with God. You know, I've been in level three for quite a while, it's really, really pretty cool. I'm a gold member, you know, that, that, it, it's not true. And so let's look at how you show that you have an altar. The homeless man we mentioned earlier, he didn't show that he had resources he could have drawn from because he didn't know about them. Here's another guy, Richard Leroy Walters. He died in 2009. 
he was a homeless uh, guy, but he left an estate worth $4 million. He knew he had the money, but he chose to live as if he did not for moral reasons. Now, we might admire Walters, but it's not a good example for a believer. We should not live as if we had few resources. We ought to instead tap into all of them and show it. Uh, We should act like we are spiritual billionaires, the richest people on earth, rich in faith. Now, in the second month, verse 8 of the second year, second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. A year had passed since the returnees first arrived. A lot of planning took place during that year, obviously. God is orderly. That doesn't discount the miraculous or the spontaneous, but it does encourage us to do all things decently and in order. Spontaneity itself is not more spiritual. I just tuck that away. A lot of people think, well, if something spontaneous were to happen, if somebody jumped up and started prophesying or speaking in tongues, that would be more spiritual. Uh, That's not necessarily true. I'm not saying it couldn't be true. It could be true but it's not necessarily true. Spontaneity in and of itself is not spiritual. What's spiritual is what is said and what is done. And for the most part, God is decent and in order. Weren't too many interruptions during this first seven day or six days of creation. He didn't get sidetracked on on anything. Everything happened in a decent, orderly way and we should conduct ourselves that way in the church. Levites were chosen, probably trained to serve as on-site building inspectors. Some were as young as 20. Youth does not always mean immaturity. Some who have been in Christ for decades remain immature for one reason or another, while younger believers can be solid and settled. Life experience is important. It creates a depth that you just can't have without it. But the lack of it doesn't mean a person can't be used by God. They can. Then Jeshua, now some of your Bibles say Joshua, and that's, it's either way, so I'm not mispronouncing it. Uh, I'm not slurring my words. I don't need an ambulance, not yet. (laughs) Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God and the house, uh, excuse me, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When I was in sales a million years ago, one of the motivational mantras we used was plan your work and work your plan. It's trite, but it was effective. The returnees had a plan and they worked together as one man to accomplish it. It was a happy job site. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Foundation wasn't much, but the returnees looked beyond it to the finished work and all the ministry that was going to happen there. Trumpets, cymbals, responsive singing. They celebrated by worshiping the Lord for his eternal goodness and mercy. While worship is so much more than instruments and singing, uh, Christians are fond of trying to one-up you all the time when you say, you know, we were at the, we worship the Lord. Well, worship is more than singing. And you're like, okay, yeah, I knew that. 
but we still worship the Lord. And so it is more than that, but the Lord enjoys our singing. He, in fact, it says he sings over us in Zephaniah 3.17. If he sings over us, we should sing unto him, right? Otherwise, he thinks it's a musical and we think it's a tragedy. So God's singing over you. Ever think about that? That's a, that's a wonderful thing. I don't like musicals either, but then you start watching them and you think, this is actually pretty cool. It's very romantic. I don't know how you'd have romance without music. And so God is singing over you and we sing unto the Lord. And so uh, it's just an encouragement to participate uh, you know, in our worship services. Verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, grumpy old men, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. And we're talking major old men here because they've been in captivity 70 years. And so, you know, they're 80, 90, 100 years old, these guys. And they're like the guys on the Muppet show, you know, up in the gallery. <laughs> I remember that temple? That's gonna be lame. I can't stand that. And so uh, they're just... Solomon's temple had been magnificent, opulent, extravagant, splendid. This second temple, I'm going to be plain and basic. It was built on a smaller scale with fewer resources. Solomon's temple had housed the Ark of the Covenant. That was no longer in Israel's possession. It fell out of history and remains lost today. First temple's dedication, the altar had been lit by fire from heaven. The temple had been filled with the glory of God. That wasn't going to happen in this second temple. However, the prophet Haggai would rebuke these old guys and he predicted a greater spiritual glory for the second temple because Jesus would visit it in his first company, uh, coming rather, and you don't get more glorious than that. And so verse 12, many of the priests and Levites, heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the joy from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. Joy drowned out the joyless. Joy is a great weapon in our witness. We have the joy of his salvation, Psalm 51:12. The joy of the Lord is our strength, Nehemiah 8:10. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, Galatians 5:22. We rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, 1 Peter 1.8. Are you joyful or joyless? Since joy is a fruit of the Spirit and a spiritual resource, you can be joyful. And so it's a choice. And that brings us to showing your altar. If knowing your altar is the realization that all heaven's resources are in your account, everything you need, then showing it is withdrawing them when they are called for. There's a word we use to describe this. It's the word appropriate. One commentator said, appropriating does not necessarily mean gaining something new. It is set aside, uh, but to set aside for our practical possession something that already belongs to us. All spiritual blessings and everything that pertains to life and godliness already belong to you. As I said earlier, it belonged to you the very moment you were born again and it belongs to you after you've walked with Jesus for decades. It didn't build up. It, there's no interest on it to where it, it, it's higher and higher. There's no recession in heaven. Everything you need, God has provided for you spiritually. 
Once you know what is yours, your need causes you to draw from it. Here's a great quote. This author says, life is meant to bring a succession of discoveries of our need of Jesus. And with every such discovery, the way is open for a new flow of his supply. This is the explanation of so much that we cannot otherwise understand. This plunging of us into new tests where only a fresh supply of the spirit of Jesus will meet our need. And as our need in him is met, we, provide, uh, we prove rather the sufficiency of Christ to meet our need so there can be a new showing forth of his glory through us. Appropriation of spiritual resources, however, requires waiting. After we know our resources and become aware of our need, we must give Jesus the necessary time to work the appropriation into our everyday walk. Uh, Sometimes it's because of unbelief. There's a lot of different reasons, but it takes time. Let me give you an illustration that will uh, hopefully bless you and put it in perspective. When the prophet Habakkuk was troubled by God's prophecy of the exile in Babylon, he waited. He said this, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. And so God revealed to Habakkuk what he was going to do. He was going to discipline Israel by taking them into captivity in Babylon. Habakkuk wasn't real thrilled about that, as you can imagine. He didn't understand it. It threw him for a loop. It's a pretty heavy trial. It's a a pretty heavy load to bear. And so he said, I didn't really know how to deal with this. And so I went either literally or figuratively, he went up into a watchtower and he said, I'm just going to wait until God shows me what this is all about. And so there was a period of waiting. We don't know if it was an hour or a week or a year, but he struggled with this revelation, believing God, but at the same time having fear. So he had faith, but he had fear. A lot of people call their studies in the book of Habakkuk from fear to faith. But here's what he says at the end. In the end, he appropriated the joy that was available to him from the beginning. He said this, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And so Habakkuk said, in the middle of this joyless, horrendous situation where God is going to allow his temple to be destroyed, his city to be run down, his people to be exiled, carried away captive to Babylon, where worship will cease for the next 70 years, I choose to have joy. And so when all of this is happening in the land, I will reveal a joy in the Lord and the Babylonians won't know what hit them. They'll think, what more can we do to these people? And yet they remain joyful. Don't build walls when what you need is going to be provided as you wait upon the Lord. We have a tendency, I have a tendency, I'm with you in this. If I'm in the middle of something and I don't think God is coming through fast enough with some resource I need or some blessing that I need, I think, well, maybe I can help this. You know, maybe maybe there's something I can do. Maybe I need to go over here or do this other thing. And in in essence, you have to decide in your situation, am I kind of leaving the altar to build walls because I'm more afraid than I have faith? And that's an important question. And this is why God has a struggle and wait. 
so that we can figure these things out. It would be nothing for God to, to take all of your troubles away. And, you know, and for you to go through life with no trouble, but then you would be a petulant little child who had no depth and couldn't help anybody and had no life experience and those kinds of things. You'd be useless as a Christian. Instead, God says, I'm gonna let you work this out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that the things he's promised you are yours and will come to you. So endure by faith in what God has promised. Show the world you have an altar and don't need the walls.